Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Screen Strong Families podcast, bringing you the best solutions for parents who are serious about eliminating screen conflicts in their home. Okay. So hello, everybody. Welcome today to this awesome end of our month, book of the month, um, Zoom call with Dr. Leonard Sachs. We are so thrilled to have him here. Um, but I just want to introduce myself real quick. I'm Mandy Hammond. I'm the marketing director um, with Screen Strong. We've got Melanie here and Olivia here. We're all part of the Screen Strong team. Um, and then we've got some ambassadors on here that have been helping us behind the scenes. And we're just so happy to have you all here. Um, so without further ado, I want to introduce Melanie Hempy, who is the founder of Screen Strong. Hey, hi everyone. And I'm um, just so glad to see everybody today in the middle of the day here. You know, we do things on different times <laughs> around here with Screen Strong. It's hard to do stuff at night sometimes. So I want to introduce Dr. Sachs. He is actually a good friend of mine and I am so thrilled to call him my friend. Leonard has been a family physician for I think around 30 years now. Is that right, Dr. Sachs? I think that's right. He's a not only a physician, but a psychologist, and he speaks all over the country. He's written numerous, numerous books, and our favorite one, one of our favorite ones, because um, I love Boys Adrift and Girls on the Edge, but one of our favorite ones that we're doing this month is The Collapse of Parenting. So welcome, Dr. Saxon. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Melanie. Uh, it's always a pleasure to work with you, because we are singing in harmony. Yes. So... Uh, <laughs> So I'm a family doctor. I uh, earned my uh, undergraduate degree at MIT. I earned my medical degree and my PhD in psychology at Penn. I have been a family doctor now for 32 years. Uh, and uh, along the way, I became concerned about uh, boys who were goofing off while their sisters were working hard. Uh, and I wrote a book called Why Gender Matters, then another book called Boys Adrift, then another book called Girls on the Edge, because the girls are not the winners. They're anxious and depressed and going berserk. Um, and then more recently, I wrote a book called The Collapse of Parenting, because the parents increasingly seem clueless and overwhelmed and uh, don't understand how profoundly uh, things have changed. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So... Uh, that's where I'm coming from. I don't know how you've been able to write so many incredible books. I mean, I read a lot and I've been reading a lot on the subject for such a long time. And I just keep coming back to your, your books. They're so real. Um, I mean, just your ability to get in my boots here. <laughs> it just feels like you've been living in my house and dealing with my kids. So we just appreciate it so much. And anything that we can do to continue to, to raise awareness around this issue. I know that the collapse of parenting, we chatted before and you were saying, Hey, we should have named this the collapse of American parenting. Cause there's yeah. a lot of things that other countries kind of are you doing very well that we, well, that, that was the first with. title of the book. As I told Melanie, I had planned to call the book, the collapse of American parenting, but the publisher vetoed that because they wanted to sell the book internationally. Uh, oh. And indeed, it has it has sold internationally, and there is interest in this topic uh, mm. overseas. And it's been it was translated by a Spanish publisher in Spain, uh, mm. by a Chinese publisher, uh, and a Korean publisher, uh, and a Romanian publisher. Um, 
uh, and a Vietnamese publisher, I should wow. So uh, yeah, there's clearly interest in this topic uh, internationally, but uh, I'm honored that you said my books are real, but I think one of the advantages of being a family doctor mm -hmm. is that every day you're involved in the lives of people you wouldn't choose as friends. I mean, uh, so many people have written that we Americans increasingly are in echo chambers. We watch the TV that supports our opinions. We're on websites that reinforce our opinions. We're in social media that reinforce our opinions. It's very easy as an American to surround yourself with people who think like you do. Uh, and then you don't realize that you are uh, in a little cubbyhole. But as a family doctor, every day you're seeing people you would never choose as friends, bluntly, uh, people you have nothing in common with. And that keeps you fresh. That keeps you in touch with the actual diversity of the American experience right now and not what you read about online. So I think it's, it's very valuable to be a primary care physician and, and encounter affluent people, low-income people, people from every background uh, every day. Well, we appreciate you so much. And Mandy, why don't you get started with the... Yes. So Dr. Sachs, we thought we would start off today. We do have a few questions that we've pulled from our Facebook group. Um, but we want to start off with one of your quotes. Actually, this came from one of your podcasts with Melanie this month, which you guys, if you've not gone on to listen to the two podcasts that were posted in February with Dr. Sachs, they are awesome. So be sure to go find those. Um, but we want to just start this off with one, uh, just a discussion thought and see how you might want to expound on this a little bit. You said, if you don't teach your child, your culture, if you set them adrift, then they will look to their screen and they will look to the popular culture. That's not the culture you want your child to learn. That is a toxic culture that's all about being famous and wealthy and looking good. Tell us a little bit about how you came up with that thought. Okay, so uh, I, I want people to realize that that comment really is, is based not only in my experience, but also in some good research. And, and one of the studies I always like to cite in putting that, context, that comment in context is from uh, UCLA. So Researchers at UCLA looked at the most popular TV shows char targeting children and teens uh, from 1967 through 2007. And then they really broke down each show and quantified what is this show teaching? What is this show communicating about what's important? Uh, so they, as I said, they looked at the most popular TV shows every 10 years. So you got the Andy Griffith Show in 1967, uh, shows like Happy Days in 1977, Family Ties in 1987, and Sabrina the Teenage uh, Witch, was that her name? Mm -hmm. 1997. Uh, from 1967 through 1997, they found very little change in what the shows were teaching. Now the production values and the styles and the costumes obviously changed a lot. But the message did not change. The message from 1967 through 1997, these researchers found the most important thing, the shows are teaching kids that the most important thing is to do the right thing. Tell the truth, be a good friend, even when it hurts. That was a consistent message in, in the most popular shows from 1967 through 1997. But then between 1997 and 2007, they found American culture flipped. Being famous and being wealthy were not important. 
1967 through 1997 in the most popular TV shows. And, and this goes back before 1967. The research has only looked at 1967, but you could go back decades earlier. It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. The rich guy is the bad guy. And that's actually a characteristic of American entertainment throughout the 20th century, that the rich guys were the bad guys. They were evil. They were only interested in money. The good guys, the common guys, uh, uh, you know, the Jackie Gleason character, the, the Lucy character, they're not rich, they're not famous, and they don't want to be rich or famous. It's about being a good person, being a good neighbor, being a good family member. That's very characteristic of American entertainment. That was American culture. Now, yeah, I know, it, much more racist and sexist and homophobic, I get it. I'm not saying those were the good old days. I'm saying that the researchers find that American culture 20 years ago or 50 years ago was teaching kids that doing the right thing was the most important thing. And that is no longer true of American culture. So the researchers found that between 1997 and 2007, American culture flipped. And suddenly by 2007, the most popular shows, shows like Survivor and iCarly, are now all about winning and, and being rich and famous. You know, doing the right thing, that's going to get you voted off the island. Suddenly by 2007, it's all about being rich and famous. And other research finds it's only gotten worse since then. And they actually use the, the phrase, the, the cult of wealth and fame. That American culture is now a cult of wealth and fame. That being rich and famous is now what's really important. And I find girls now who say, I'll say, what do you want to be? What, what's your dream? And they'll say, I want to be the next Jojo Siwa. And the first time a girl said that to me, I had to say, who's that? J-O-J-O-S-I-W-A. Is this girl in Nebraska? Not very talented. I'm not trying to be mean, but I mean, I think if you look at her video, nothing special. But it went viral. And she's rich and famous and she has millions of followers and she has $20 million and, and she's 17 years old. And she's a star of the internet. Uh, she's famous for being famous. She, she's not actually particularly good at anything. I mean, she's not a great singer or dancer or actor. She likes to play with Barbies and talk about Barbies. Um, and her comments about Barbies are not particularly insightful. I'm not saying this to be critical of her. I don't expect much of a 17-year-old. A 13-year-old is when she became famous. But kids look at this and 13-year-olds and, and look at this and they're like, hey, I'm prettier than she is. I'm a better dancer than she is. I'm funnier than she is. I'm going to be famous uh, because it's only reasonable. Uh, these kids don't understand that the internet doesn't work that way. And yeah, I'll say to this girl, you are prettier than she is and you are a lot funnier than she is. So what? That's not the way the internet works. What determines why one video goes viral and another doesn't? Time and chance. Mm -hmm. The race is not to the swift. It is not the case that the fastest person wins the race. You can be uh, funnier than Jojo Siwa and better looking than Jojo Siwa. That means nothing. And as I've said to Melanie before, online and offline, that I'm seeing all these girls who put so much time and effort into making this TikTok video. And it's great. It's a great video. It's funny. It's, it's, it's 
well done. It's professional grade. And after two weeks, it's got 50 views and a bunch of negative comments. And the girl's like, what did I do wrong? My video's funnier and bettier than this video. They got 20 million views. And I got 50 views. And I'll, I'll tell you, the race is not to the swift. Life is not fair. Uh, but nobody tells them this. On the contrary, they're immersed in, you go on the internet and you get all these things on YouTube about this kid did, whipped off this video in five minutes, it went viral and now they're rich and famous. And that is held up. That's the culture of the internet. And it is an immensely toxic culture, not just because of what that girl is selling. I don't think there's anything that particularly toxic in what Joe, you know, Barbies. I'm not a big fan of Barbies, but there's worse things online than Barbies. It's the notion that by investing a few minutes of time and effort, you too can be rich and famous. Mm -hmm. That's what the internet is selling. And that's really toxic. Thank you so much. That brought a lot of light to that um, quote that we'd put out there and how it's up to us as parents to teach them counter. We talk about that a lot at Screen Strong, even in our private conversations, like we're countercultural, like that's our goal is to be countercultural and that's our goal to teach our children. Um, so we have a couple questions for you. Um, and the first one actually hit me personally. I'd read it and I thought, I have a personal story about this, so I'm just gonna share it. And this is regarding, um, well, I'll tell you the question, I'll tell you my personal experience first. So can you address the connections between the stats of the iPhone coming out and the rise in antidepressant and ADH prescriptions in children. And I'm going to share my just quick little story that I personally had was with my 15 year old daughter about a year ago, took her in for a wellness check. And, um, she mentions to the pediatrician, or I guess she was a general doctor. We'd never seen her before. She did not know us and mentioned to her that she was dealing with some anxiety. And before we were, we left that appointment, the doctor had prescribed her Prozac had explained to her how to use it and to stick with it for two weeks because she might feel a little weird and that she puts a lot of teenagers on this drug and has just seen night and day differences. And my daughter's kind of looking at her big eyed, you know, does not look at me, the parent, until after all of this, to which I said, oh, no, 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 we're not ready for Prozac yet. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and in my gut at that time, this is pre-screen strong, in my gut, I knew, oh gosh, I think it's Instagram. Like I just had seen that change happening in my daughter over the year that she'd had her smartphone. And so we got in the car and I said, actually, we're going to try something else. We're going to get rid of Instagram and which did prove to take care of a lot of her issues. So with that question, what connections are you seeing in your practice with the iPhone coming out? And then also this rise in these prescriptions being just handed out to our kids. What is the relationship between the iPhone coming out in 2007 and the subsequent rise in anxiety and depression? That subsequent rise in anxiety and depression has been seen mostly with girls, much less so with boys. And Melanie on multiple occasions has been interviewed by Julie Jargon of the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. And she and I both read what Julie Jargon writes. <laughs> and a few months ago, Julie Jargon, who's the parenting uh, Tech and parenting writer. Yes, for the Wall Street Journal, had what Melanie and I both think was a really terrible article for the Wall Street Journal, where she basically said, Hey, parents of girls, get your daughters playing video games and they'll yeah. be happy. Yeah. Uh, now, this addresses your, your comment about the iPhone and anxiety and depression. So, 
Julie Jargon mentioned that some kids are spending a lot more time online as a result of the pandemic. And the girls are really getting miserable, but the boys aren't. Boys seem happy. And there's a lot of truth to that uh, because the girls are spending their time on social media and the boys are spending their screen time on video games. And social media leads directly to anxiety and depression. Uh, and I think we can now say that the empirical connection there is very strong. Uh, Gene Twenge, among others, has really uh, pioneered that research uh, with very large studies, hundreds of thousands of kids, uh, showing a very, very strong link between social media and depression. But there is not a link between video games and depression. Those are true statements. So Julie Jargon concludes from that, let's get the girls off the social media and get them playing video games. That's not good advice. But, but I think that you folks who, have, uh, who are part of this uh, conversation this hour, I think you'd be interested in my take on why is that the case? Because uh, I've talked to so many boys about this. Playing video games an hour or two a day does not lead to depression in the great majority of cases. On the contrary, what you have is boys who absolutely love playing video games and seem to be very happy. Why is that? Video games are very carefully designed to re reward your investment of time. As you invest more time, you will become more successful. And if you invest enough time, you will be master of the universe. And there's great satisfaction to that. I remember uh, decades ago when I read The World According to Garp, the author mentioned that in love, you can invest all kinds of time and effort and still get nothing. He said, cooking will keep you safe. Cooking will keep you sane. Because in cooking, if you invest time and effort, you'll usually get something that tastes pretty good. Not always, but usually. And I think we can update that comment to video games. In video games, if you invest many hours of time and effort, you will win. You will be master of the universe. And that's very satisfying. That's very rewarding. But in Instagram or TikTok, you can invest hundreds of hours of time and effort and get nothing. In fact, more often than that, that's exactly what will happen. For every one person whose video goes viral, there's thousands or millions of people whose videos don't go viral. And I think that's, that's how I would answer Julie Jargon. Uh, Melanie and I actually wrote a letter to the editor of the Wall Street Journal responding to that terrible article and saying, look, the solution for the pandemic is not to get more girls playing video games. The solution is to turn off the screens. Our letter was not published, uh, but I think it was troubling that someone who really is as knowledgeable as Julie Jarkin uh, could look at this research and say, oh, okay, so the solution is to get girls off social media and on to video games in both cases. Look, I've talked to so many families where the son is barricaded in his room playing video games and the daughter is barricaded in her room on social media. The solution is not to turn your daughter into your son. The solution is to turn off the screens and re-engage both kids with the real world. Because that boy who seems so happy, 
that's not going to last. That's not real world happiness. Anybody can win at video games if they put in enough time and effort. You need to engage him with the real world. And just because he's happier than his depressed sister doesn't make him the winner. It's not the solution. So Dr. Sachs, why are so many doctors not understanding this and why are they prescribing so many medications instead of just yeah. saying to get off the screen? Well, of course, in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, I look at the comparative rates of prescribing in this country, because again, having visited these other countries and talked to parents in Germany and Switzerland and Scotland and New Zealand and Australia, and then coming back to this country, then you realize just how weird it is that the first resort in this country is to put every kid on medication and how we are now outliers. So I wanted parents to realize the United States is now an outlier nation. We push medications, we push psychiatric medications on children in a way that is done nowhere outside of North America. Canada is following in our footsteps, but outside the United States and Canada, nobody's putting kids on medications. A child in the United States is 14 times more likely to be on medication for ADHD compared to a child in the United Kingdom. And the United Kingdom is regarded as an outlier. And in continental Europe, uh, again, so I wrote a book for a French publisher uh, titled Pourquoi les garçons perpillent les filles se mettent en danger, which uh, was a, a kind of a mashup of boys adrift and girls on the edge written for French audience using French data in collaboration with French researchers. And we threw out the chapter on ADHD. Boys Adrift has two chapters on ADHD. We threw them out. Working with French researchers, I learned that in all of France, there are fewer than 6,000 kids on medication for ADHD. There are more kids in Columbus, Ohio on medications for ADHD than there are in all of France, a nation of 65 million people. And that's when I really got the idea for that chapter and what became the collapse of parenting that, wow, Americans don't know this. I didn't know this. And I've written on this topic. I was not aware of the fact that a child in the United States is more than a hundred times more likely to be on medication for ADHD compared to a child in France. Where is this coming from? So that's what I try to address in that chapter of, of the collapse of parenting. But the short answer I give is that in the United States, Medication is the first resort. It's the first thing that doctors recommend. And this is true of family doctors and pediatricians. In France, in New Zealand, in Germany, in Switzerland, it would be the very last resort after every other accommodation has been made. But in this country, it is the first resort. And I think parents need to be aware of that and need to be on their guard. Uh, you know, and I share a story from my own practice uh, Dad was on contract uh, as a civilian with the British Armed Forces. They were living near a British base in, the, in England, but they didn't have a, a, a school. Uh, so he was, the, the eight-year-old is attending a local English state school, what we would call a public school. Uh, and he was, you know, he's an average student getting average grades. Uh, and then after three years, they came back to this country. And mom told me that within a week, other parents were saying, hey, you know, have you thought of having your son evaluated? You know, maybe, maybe he'd do better on medication. And then sure enough, a week or two later, the teacher is saying, you know, have you thought of having your son evaluated? He might benefit from Adderall or Vyvanse. 
And mom said it was creepy. It was like it was like I was in a movie where everyone was employed by the drug companies to try to get my kid on medication. And I was like, okay, so he's getting bees. Is that a I have to medicate my child? I have to put him on powerful medication because he's not a straight A student. It's weird. She said, never, never a whisper of this in three years in England. And back in the United States, within two weeks, I've got half a dozen people telling me I need to medicate my kid. And, and again, that was one of the objectives I had in that chapter is to alert American parents that we are outliers, that the rest of the world does not medicate kids, nor did we 30 years ago. This has happened recently. 30 years ago, there was no difference between the United States and England in the proportion of kids on psychiatric medication. Now there is. What happened? Well, in this country, we legalized the marketing of prescription medication to children. 40 years ago, that was unlawful in the United States. It is still unlawful in every country on the planet, with the exception of New Zealand, but very little marketing, direct marketing of prescription medication happens in New Zealand. But in this country, your copy of Parents Magazine comes shrink-wrapped with an ad for Vyvanse showing how this kid's now doing so great in school since he got on his Vyvanse. Uh, and again, American parents don't realize this would be unlawful. It, it, you can't do this in England or Switzerland. You cannot market prescription medications direct to parents, but in this country you can. And the advertisers know their business. Uh, you know, we all want what's best for our kids. And, and we hear, well, you know, Johnny across the street, he's doing great since he started on Vyvanse. So you know, I want the best for my kid. And so, doctor, do you think my child would benefit from Vyvanse? Let's try it and see, is the most common answer America, American physicians will give. Let's try it and see. So I shared, um, you know, I spoke at Harvard Medical School on a conference on learning and the brain. That was the topic of the conference. And my uh, topic was gender and education. And I would love to tell you that my presentation was the buzz of the conference, but that's not true. The buzz of the conference was a presentation given by Dr. John Gabrielli at MIT, who somehow got permission to give Adderall, very popular medication for ADHD, to give Adderall to normal kids and to withhold medication from kids with severe ADHD. And then to look how kids in both groups learned, how well did kids learn on and off medication. And he found that medication helps normal kids more than it helps kids with ADHD. That's hugely important because very often parents will say, uh, well, Dr. Sachs, the other doctor gave Vyvanse to my kid and it really helped. In other words, the parents are interpreting the response to medication as though it had some diagnostic significance. This medication was prescribed for ADHD. It helped, therefore my kid must have ADHD. Bzz, wrong. That's what Dr. Gabrielli's research shows us. These medications help normal kids as much or more than they help kids who truly have ADHD. Okay, so these kids help, these medications help normal kids a lot as much or more than they help kids with ADHD, help them to concentrate and focus, make up for their sleep deprivation, um, and boost their mood. Adderall, Vyvanse, Ritalin, Concerto, Metadate, these are mood elevators. They make you happier. What's not to like? Why not just put all the kids on medication? Well, the problem is we now have 
19 studies, uh, 19 different studies now showing that these medications, Adderall, Vyvanse, Ritalin, Concerta, Metadate, Focalin, Detrana, damage the motivational center of the brain, damage the motivational center of the brain. The end result of a kid who takes these medications for years is a kid who is not motivated. And I explore that at length in my book, Boys Adrift. Uh, I talk about a boy again in my own practice who uh, whose uh, mom insisted he come talk to me. <clears throat> uh, she confronted him one day. She said, you know, what's the story? You roll out of bed late every day. You work a few hours a week at the coffee shop. You're 28 years old. You don't have a life. You don't even have a girlfriend. And he said, well, I used to have a girlfriend. Then she dumped me when she found out and just worked a few hours a week at Starbucks. She insisted he come talk to me. He was fine with that. He's known me since he was little. Um, He's perfectly happy. He was on uh, methylphenidate, uh, marketed then under the name Ritalin, uh, also marketed under the name Detrana, Focalin, uh, from nine to 19 years of age, prescribed by uh, a, uh, another doctor. That's the end result. He's perfectly happy, but he is completely unmotivated. And this is becoming common. Um, but American doctors are not even aware of uh, the dangers. Uh, so I was speaking in Greenwich Village, uh, trying to remember, remember the name of this school. It's blocking, I'm forgetting it. So I was talking to parents about the dangers and then I got an email from a professor of psychiatry at New York University who said, one of my good friends was telling me about a presentation you gave, Grace Church School, that's the name of the school that you asserted that these medications damage the nucleus accumbens of the brain. And I have never encountered such research. And I would be grateful if you would share your resources. Well, I sent her off. I think there were 14 at that time. Um, and it was astonishing to me that she hadn't bothered to check. I mean, it would take any physician two minutes uh, at the National Library of Medicine, nlm.nah.gov, to find at least a dozen of those references, but she was so confident as a professor of psychiatry at NYU that this family doctor couldn't possibly know what he was talking about. She didn't bother. But you know, I know where that's coming from because I got a flyer from Harvard Medical School. Come to Harvard Medical School for our three-day workshop on best practice and evaluation and management of attention deficit disorder led by the renowned Dr. Joseph Biederman. Okay, well, uh, Dr. Joseph Biederman, he's got an interesting story. He was summoned by the United, to the United States Senate Judiciary Committee by Senator um, uh, Charles um, of Iowa, Grassley, Chuck Grassley. And Senator Grassley said, Dr. Biederman, you have been pushing these medications really hard. You have said that if a doctor prescribes Adderall for a, a child or teenager and the parents don't promptly fill and administer the medication, uh, Dr. Biederman, you have said those parents should be considered for charges of child neglect. Dr. Biederman, are you by any chance accepting, have you accept, accepted money recently for the drug companies you haven't publicly disclosed? It, it turns out he had accepted more than $1.6 million from the drug companies that he hadn't disclosed. He broke no law. There's no law in the United States requiring doctors to disclose payments from drug companies. Uh, you know, in this country, Harvard Medical School carries weight. I can tell you, having spoken on this topic in Germany and Switzerland, Harvard doesn't impress anyone. 
in uh, Europe, they regard Harvard as a shell for the drug companies. Uh, Harvard Medical School does, has no prestige uh, in Germany or Switzerland. There's a great article that I cite from the Germans where they wondered why are American kids 40 times more likely to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder compared to kids in Germany? And they conclude that doctors in America have no idea how to diagnose bipolar disorder. Uh, that uh, doctors in this country push medication. So that flyer from Harvard Medical School made no reference of any drug company. Uh, just talked about the renowned Dr. Joseph Biederman. No mention of the fact that Dr. Joseph Biederman, professor at Harvard Medical School and director of research in pediatric psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, functions as a paid spokesperson for the drug company. What he gets paid from Harvard is a small fraction of what he gets paid by the drug companies. But he's not required to disclose that. Uh, we got some big country, uh, problems in this country. Our, our uh, psychiatric establishment has been, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is, but it's very much influenced by the drug companies in a way that is simply not seen outside of North America, uh, where that would be unlawful. Um, and so there's several factors. Don't blame your local doctor. They're not getting squat from the drug companies. That's not the way the drug companies used. I'm old enough to remember 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when the drug companies actually would bring lunch to the doctor's office. They don't do that anymore because their own research showed it's not cost-effective. Go after the opinion leaders, go after the uh, uh, department chairs. So Senator Grassley's old investigation, own investigation summoned uh, Dr. Nemiroff, chief of psychiatry at Emory, who admitted accepting $3 million recently. Again, no, no law was broken. The drug companies can give them all the money they want. But when you have the chief of the National Institute of Mental Health, the chief at Emory, director of pediatric psychiatric research at Harvard, all telling doctors, hey, this is what you need to do. Prescribe early, prescribe often, and never stop. Again, I'm old enough to remember when ADHD was defined as a disorder of childhood. That was the definition in DSM-2 and DSM-3, uh, which meant that when you're a grown-up, you grow out of it. Dr. Biederman said, nope, once on medication, always on medication. Never stop prescribing medication. Uh, the rest of the world has not bought into that. The rest of the world does not regard ADHD as an adult diagnosis, but in the United States and Canada, it's an adult diagnosis. So again, one of the things I was trying to accomplish in that chapter in The Collapse of Parenting is to alert American parents we are crazy outside. We are wild outliers in psychiatric practice for children and teenagers. Now, again, many parents have pushed back hard and they have said, hey, I don't need, I don't, I don't really care about the drug companies so supposedly corrupting Harvard Medical School because I saw, Dr. Zach, I saw firsthand how life-changing Adderall and Vyvanse was for my child. My, my kid was was failing uh, school. And then they put him on Vyvanse and wow, that first day, got a phone call from the teacher. We had no idea how smart your son was. Well, it turns out this boy is staying up past midnight playing video games. He was sleep deprived. Sleep deprivation perfectly mimics ADHD of the inattentive variety. There is no Connor scale. There is, and I can confirm that with my discussions with Dr. Connor prior to his death, he would be the first person to tell you the Connor scale is of no value 
in determining why this kid isn't paying attention, distinguishing uh, inattention due to ADHD from inattention due to sleep deprivation is the job of the clinician. Clinician has to do a, a careful sleep history and find out how much sleep does this kid need? Most teenagers need nine hours a night, but this boy's staying up till one or two in the morning playing video games. He's getting four or five hours of sleep a night. He's sleep deprived. What's Adderall? What's Vyvanse? They're amphetamines. They compensate for the sleep deprivation. Yeah, the parent's experience, the teacher's experience is absolutely valid. But the appropriate remedy for sleep deprivation is sleep, not schedule two amphetamines. And again, this is where American parents have gone off the deep end. Researchers find that kids in England, kids in Scotland are just as likely to have mobile phones as kids in the United States. But I can tell you, in England and Scotland, the kids do not go to bed with their phones. In this country, they do. Kids should not be going to bed with a screen in the room. Very, very good. Oh my goodness, that just sheds so much light, I think, for a lot of us. The next question goes kind of along with this, um, and it's somebody in our group, so I want to make sure we get it answered. But her question was, well, how do you know if a child's behavior is psychiatric or if it's just behavioral? And this person's um, son has been diagnosed with mood regulation disorder. Um, he's on medication and in play therapy. And she also asked, so here's the deal. How do I um, how do I find a doctor in the U.S. that isn't bought out by pharmaceutical companies? Like, how does one vet a doctor for that? Yeah. It doesn't just go right to that. Those are really good questions. You've got to find someone. You've got to find a professional who is not just going to say, let's try Adderall and see if it helps. Because again, that's the default in this country. So I have three practitioners that I recommend, one in McLean, Virginia, one in Austin, Texas, and one in, excuse me, uh, Palo Alto, California, who I have known for many years and who I think do a really good job of doing the evaluation. I'm sure there's many more. I just don't know who they are, and I don't want to recommend someone I don't know. Uh, but I'll tell you one very useful question. If your doctor prescribes Adderall, Vyvanse, Ritalin, Concerta, Metadate, Focalidotrana, any of, any of the stimulant medications, ask the doctor, doctor, are you aware of the research showing that these medications damage the nucleus accumbens, the motivational center of the brain? If that doctor is not aware, I would be very skeptical of that uh, physician. Uh, now, let's be honest. How do doctors keep up? And I'm talking now about before the pandemic. Before the pandemic, here's how you keep up. You go to a CME conference. Uh, your employer will generally pay for you to go to a week-long continuing medical education conference, CME. And it's usually in some place really nice. Um, and I've gone to these conferences in Sedona, Arizona, or Orlando, Florida. And uh, in the morning, you go to these workshops and you listen to all the experts tell you the latest. And then the afternoon, you do fun things with your family. I see nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I don't see anything wrong with that, provided that the workshops are led by people who have no connection to the drug companies. And the problem are a lot of these workshops are led by people who have connections to the drug companies, which you may not even know. That workshop sponsored by Harvard Medical School with Dr. Joseph Biederman, 
makes no mention of any drug company, you might have no way of knowing that Dr. Biederman is a paid spokesperson for the drug companies because they don't tell you, nor are they required to. They're not breaking any law. Uh, so you, the parent, must do your due diligence. So when I wrote my book, Boys Adrift, I included very detailed guidance for parents on the five required criteria for making the diagnosis of ADHD. And I went 12 rounds fighting with my publisher because the publisher said, Dr. Saft, are you, they wanted to, to strike it. They didn't want to publish that. They said, Dr. Sachs, are you seriously suggesting that a parent after reading your book is qualified to question the professional judgment of a board certified child psychiatrist with years of experience. You really think a parent is qualified based on just reading your book to question the judgment, the professional judgment of the child psychiatrist. And I said, yes, I said, absolutely. The parent must challenge and question the child psychiatrist because child psychiatry in this country has gone off the rails. It is an outlier internationally. Doctors in this country are doing things that doctors do nowhere else outside of North America. And so parents must now challenge and question what the doctor is recommending. And absolutely, I want parents to challenge and question and feel free to give my name and contact information to the doctor. And I'm happy to engage in conversation professional to professional. But because many doctors will say, hey, I was just at a three-day conference sponsored by Harvard Medical School, led by the renowned Dr. Joseph Biederman, and, and he never said anything about dangers of these medications. Mm -hmm. So the whole system, there's a lot of problems with the practice of uh, prescribing for children and teenagers in this country. Again, we're an outlier in that we allow drug companies to market these medications directly to parents. Um, we're an outlier in that doctors in this country are allowed to accept millions of dollars without disclosing that to parents. Uh, so the dice are loaded against the parents. Parents have to be willing to ask, to question the prescribing physician. And if you're not satisfied with the answers, you have to find someone else. And I just want to add... Um, as far as the medication goes, and Dr. Sachs, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but what we recommend to parents that are dealing with the struggle with this ADHD medication decision, that they do take their kids off their screens for about six weeks, just to see, you know, if there's any change in the classroom. And many times there is. Um, so there, there can be some correlations there. So, um, and I'm, I'm sure. Yep. Well, and I want to support what Melanie just said, uh, specifically with regard to video games and ADHD. We now have so much research showing that uh, video, the most popular video games really program a short attention span. Mm -hmm. And some parents will say, well, I don't see how my son could have ADHD because he can play video games for five hours at a stretch. And they don't realize that that's the way the game is designed. It's constantly changing. It's always fun and interesting. Um, and it's making it harder for this kid to sit still and pay attention in his Spanish class, which is not a video game and where he actually has to listen and learn how to conjugate verbs, uh, which is not a video game. And it's not particularly fun. Um, so we, we have lots of good data now making a link between excessive 
video game play and subsequent development of attention ADHD type symptoms. So to just try that, and teachers may not even tell you to try that, but I've had parents come back to me to say that the teachers actually email them to say, oh, is your son on medication yeah. now? And they say, uh, no, I just took him off his video game. So yeah. it's definitely and, something. Well, you're absolutely right. Teachers will never suggest this because teachers assume that parents are helpless, that mm. parents can do nothing about their kids' screen time. And yet teachers have complained to me, the most common complaint I now have from teachers, and I didn't hear this 10 years ago, but I hear it all the time now, is, is kids falling asleep in class mm -hmm. because the eight-year-old boys are staying up past midnight playing video games and the teachers will try. They'll reach out to the parents and say, you know, you need to, you need to maybe get the video game console out of the bedroom because your son is playing video games till two in the morning. And the, the parent will say, oh, I couldn't do that. He'd, he'd totally, he'd flip out. Yeah. He's eight years old. Come on, mom. No video game consoles in the bedroom. Right. That's not a big ask. And yet many, Amer that's what I, that's in a nutshell, what I mean by the collapse of parenting, parents who are intimidated by their eight-year-old child to the point that they will not remove the video game console from the bedroom, even when the teacher begs them to, because the kid is literally falling asleep in class. Yeah. Well, Mandy, I will read that thing real quick on about virtue. And, and Dr. Sachs says in his book that action Shapes character, if we act virtuously consistently for long enough, we become more virtuous. And I think I, I think in, in closing, Dr. Sachs, if, again, just reiterate that with our audience. It's not about the forbidden fruit. It's not about they have to learn this for the future. It's about what are they learning now? And you do that so well in your book. Well, it is a challenge because again, uh, the New York Times and so many resources tell us that good parenting means letting kids decide. That uh, you know, you shouldn't tell your kid what to do. You should let them decide. Let them make good choices. Uh, and I suppose in some cultures or contexts that just might make sense, but it doesn't make sense in contemporary American culture. Because if you let kids decide and your kid is an American kid, you let your kid decide how much time they're going to spend online uh, and uh, what they're going to do with their screens, well, they're going to look to their peers. They're going to look to YouTube and the, in and the internet. And what they're going to find there is really toxic. Uh, you have to be the parent. You have to teach right and wrong to your kid. Because if you don't, if you set them adrift, what they will find is Akon, Eminem, Cardi B, Miley Cyrus, Kim Kardashian. There are four women right now with more than 200 million followers on Instagram. Can you name them? They are Ariana Grande, Kylie Jenner, Selena Gomez, and Kim Kardashian, all of whom specialize in the pouting lips, the selfie half-dressed in lingerie. It's a really toxic culture out there. And you must protect your child from that toxic culture. You must introduce your child to a healthier culture. Uh, and that's not being controlling. That's called being a good parent. So, so good. Oh my goodness, this was just great. So Melanie, do you have anything else you'd like to say before we 
Just thank you so much, Dr. Sachs, for everything. You have changed so many lives and we are your biggest fans. Thank you. <laughs> or at least yeah, I am. <laughs> we will continue sharing your quotes and we appreciate you being in our group to kind of see what's going on in there. And um, yeah. just so proud of our Screen Strong families. I mean, I think we're up to over 1400 now. It's just blowing our minds every day, just going, wow, people want this message. They want to be empowered to make the changes with their kiddos. Um, so thank you guys for coming today. Um, just a really quick announcement is our book of the month. Okay. And you'll see an official announcement tomorrow in the group, but it is PlayStation nation by Kurt and Olivia Bruner. <laughs> You're going to love the podcast on it. It's going to come out the first week of March with Olivia. It was fabulous. We did it the other day and I was like, this is so good. It's going to be great. So I'm excited to read this. It's timeless. She wrote it in 2006, but goodness, everything still applies in here and even more so. I so, have a personal connection to the cover art. Do you? Uh, yes, we wanted that cover art for Boys Adrift and it was taken. Oh, uh, so. <laughs> I already grabbed it. Yeah, that's so great to know. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to tell her. That's kind of funny. That's great. So mark your calendars for next month. The last Friday of the month is kind of always the goal on doing these Zoom calls with the authors. And we have just so enjoyed them. What a cool thing to have the author of the book on here. So mark that in your calendar for next month and watch for those announcements. Head over to our website, screenstrong.com to learn more about our new and improved ScreenStrong challenge. We just released it on the 14th. And you guys, it is so great. It is such an awesome resource. So get over there and look at that. Um, and grab that for your families. And also make sure if you're not in our Screen Strong Families group on Facebook that you go and find that and join um, and share it with your friends. So thank you guys so much for coming and we will see you next time. Stay strong.